Hello, friends. This is the Neatarts Friends Church podcast. We are Jesus people, Kingdom of God people, welcoming, yearning, sharing. And we're glad you're connecting here with us. We'd love to connect in person as well. If you're inclined to support this podcast or for more information, just hop on over to neatartsfriends.org. That's neatartsfriends.org. Let's jump into today's sermon. A couple in their 30s sit down in the plush leather seats of a private jet. They're quickly served a glass of wine for her and a glass of scotch for him. She works in upper management for a Fortune 500 company and he's an investment banker. They're on their way to a vacation with friends at a private tropical resort. Their life could hardly be more perfect. They both make well over six figures. They've escaped the city with all of its down and outers and low lives, and they're in the process of building a mansion on an incredible piece of property in the mountains within easy driving distance of the city. Their bodies are perfect. Their hair and skin are perfect. They're smart and well-respected by everyone they work with. Anyone who follows them on social media would say they look like they're living the dream life. He has an incredible collection of vintage cars that he works on restoring. She's the life of the party. Their friends all love them. Their marriage is easy, breezy, carefree, full of laughter, passion, and adventure. They arrive at their tropical resort, and there they sit, in fancy lawn chairs, on a patio looking out over the jungle. Wait staff are eager to bring them fresh margaritas. Beyond the bar is a big fire with haunches of exotic meats barbecuing over spits. Tomorrow they'll enjoy a spa where they'll paste their bodies in mud and salts of exotic lands. And later they'll enjoy curated adventures after curated adventures, zip lines, dune buggies, snorkeling. They'll be snapping pictures all along the way to document their perfect life for everyone else. And nearly anyone who knows them would say, they're two of the happiest people on earth. Their life is perfect. Halfway around the globe is another couple, Bushmen, tribespeople, on the Kalahari Savannah. A man and a woman are squatting around a fire. The only clothing they own is loosely draped about around their sun-baked bodies, just a few hides, and some pieces of handmade jewelry, prized, precious, because they've been passed down from generations. Children run and laugh around them. A toddler without a diaper of any kind nurses from his mother while she watches the fire. They're cooking a haunch of gazelle that the man harvested that morning on the open savanna. Behind them is a rough structure made of sticks, clay, mud, straw. It's their only shelter in the world from predators and wild storms that drench the savanna. The dirt and dust of the savanna is crusted on their skin along with salty residue of who knows how many days worth of accumulated sweat. Their faces are creased from years of smiling. As they squat around the fire, the contentment radiates around them. The laughter of their children radiates, the love for their family, their community, the land they live in. It all radiates. They've never known the the anxiety of pleasing investors, the rat race of 
competition and jockeying for an upper management position, they have very few things like that that they worry about. They spend every day in the present moment noticing the birds, the dirt, the trees, the grass, the fire, the animals, the weather. They've learned to live with the land in such a way that it provides what they need. Every day is a gift from God. Every gazelle harvested is a gift. Every rain, every drink of water is a gift. And they're some of the happiest people on the planet. These two couples, they'll probably never meet. But there they both sit, in their two corners of the world, eating barbecued haunches of exotic meat, covered in the salt and clay of the land, living an adventure, smiling and laughing, some of the happiest people on the planet. Now, did I just describe anyone you know or anyone you've ever known? I can think of people I know who fit the description of the first couple. They seem to have it all and Somehow they seem to have managed to escape everything dark and ugly in this world, and they don't have a single reason not to be happy. They appear to be some of the happiest people in the world. And then I can think of people I've known who have just about nothing. Every day is work and survival, and yet somehow they haven't caught the anxiety of the world around them, and they see everything in life as a gift somehow. They take everything in stride and live in the present moment. It's strange to consider the happiness of people coming from completely different ends of the human experience. And I wonder, is their happiness the same? Is all happiness the same? Does all happiness reach into the depths of the soul or come out of the depths of the soul in the same way? Is there a difference between a happiness that sits on the surface, possibly covering all other emotions? Is there a difference between that and a happiness that rises from the depths, filling the soul, the heart, lighting up our eyes? I wonder what would happen to the happiness of the couple in the vacation resort if they found some big, fat, juicy caterpillars cooked into their broccoli or cockroaches in their villa or if their air conditioning failed, or their jungle jeep broke down and they were stranded for hours without food, would they still be happy? What would happen to the happiness of the Kalahari couple if a storm destroyed their hut in the night and soaked them all to the bone? Would they still be happy? When times are good, does happiness ever mask? Does it ever cover up emotions that have settled deeper into our soul? Anger, fear, sadness, hatred, anxiety, prejudice, judgment, bitterness. Do we sometimes have deep emotions that might even be destroying us inside, but we're keeping them masked by some kind of circumstantial happiness? So a reflection question or a discussion question, if you've got someone to discuss with, we chatted about this on Sunday together. Is all happiness the same? Why or why not?
This brings us to the Jonah story. Jonah chapter 4. If you want to follow along in your Bible, that's where we're picking up. Jonah was not happy. He had gone into Nineveh. He told them that they had 40 days and they were toast. And unbelievably, they repented. Which was crazy. The military capital of the most brutal oppressor of the known world turned away from evil. The Hebrew word there for evil is ra. And literally means physical injury. They turned away from physical injury. They turned away from unethical, immoral behavior against other people. And and then to make it worse, not only did Nineveh turn away from Ra, from evil, but God changed his mind and we're told that God turned away from Ra. God turned away from evil as well. They weren't going to, Nineveh wasn't going to be toast anymore. And so now, with God's change of plans, Jonah couldn't hold his emotions in anymore. He uncorked the bottle of frustration with God and was finally ready to rebuke God and correct God and let him have it. And he prayed. He said, isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? This is what I tried to avoid by running away to Tarshish. And he went on to quote the ancient creed of Israel, the most quoted of any Hebrew scripture. I knew that you are a gracious and a compassionate God, that you're slow to anger and abounding in love. You're eager to change your mind about harm, destruction, and evil. Raw. So Jonah said, Now, Lord, just take my life. Take away my life. It's better for me to die than to live. It's like, kill me now. Jonah was not happy. He was angry. And the the literal Hebrew word there, it the translation would be his nostrils were burning. He's here he is, he's a Hebrew prophet who's been sent alone into enemy territory and has made a prediction that God is going to toast Israel's enemies, their arch nemesis, Nineveh, but it has not happened. And it doesn't appear that it's going to happen, which means that he is a failure. He's a failed prophet who has predicted things who did not that did not come true, which is not a good thing for a prophet. And besides that, now the people who Jonah really wants dead more than anyone else in the world now they're being offered a life and a future as, as Israel's oppressors. Now, it wasn't that Jonah disagreed with the ancient creed, the Lord is gracious, compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in love. It wasn't that he disagreed with that. He just didn't want it to apply to the very worst people on the planet. Like, what kind of a perfect God changes what he said? Jonah couldn't stomach a God that privileged mercy over justice. It should be some kind of like, you reap what you sow. And so he just says, kill me now to God. Now, his death wish is ironic, if we're remembering the way the story goes. Because when Jonah was actually facing death, when he was in the bottom of the ocean, when he had seaweed wrapped around his head and he was in the belly of Sheol, 
he he wasn't saying to God, kill me now. He was crying out to God in sheer terror. He was saying, help. That's Jonah chapter 2, verse 1. And of course, God answered him from the realm of the dead and provided a huge fish to rescue him. But now that Jonah has to face his own failure and face living in a world with these awful Ninevites, now he wants to escape reality again, and now he's saying, just kill me now. As, as if he wants to go back to the belly of Sheol. And so Jonah's stuck in this predictable emotional pattern, and you can actually kind of track it throughout the story. It goes like something like this. It's avoidance, then distort God's message, then death wish, then call for help, then lash out at God and others, and then do it all over again. So I'll play it out so you get it. Jonah ran away to Tarshish, avoidance. Then he distorts God's message and treats God like this capricious pagan god of wrath. Then he has this death wish. He asks other people to kill him, uh, the sailors on the ship. Then he calls for help from the bottom of the ocean. Then in his prayer from the belly of the fish, he blames God for throwing him into the sea as if God did it and blames others while, you know, for worshiping idols while he holds himself up as a model of piety. Then he gets spit up on the beach and he avoids God again. He doesn't have anything to do with what God said to him until God comes to him a second time and says, I still want you to do this. So then he distorts God's message and tells Nineveh their toast. And then he lashes out at God again for changing his mind. And he's back to the death wish. And around and around we go. Can you see the pattern? And underneath Jonah's predictable pattern, there was an emotional process that Jonah was not facing. Uh, really helpful distinction that would come from the, the work of people like Murray Bowen and Steve Cuss on family systems theory, uh, but it certainly shows up here in this story. So underneath Jonah's predictable pattern, there's this emotional process that he's not facing. We all have predictable patterns that we can fall into where we keep trying harder and harder, and, and we're trying to solve the problems by just doing more of the same old thing, applying the same old solutions, and we get really focused on the content, like the, the information so we get focused on what the issue is about, what the fight is about, and fail to notice the way we're coming at the issue or the way that we're fighting or the way that we're relating. We're not really paying attention to the process, the emotional process going on underneath it all, the way that the pieces of information all relate. And so... God could have engaged in an argument with Jonah about the content. Jonah just made all these accusations, and God could have responded in a way that turned it into a long argument. You know, Jonah wants to dredge up the past and talk about when he first ran away to Tarshish, and 
He's sure that he has the right view of the world and that he, sh he accuses God, you know, God's doing evil. That's what he thinks. Raw, God, that's how he sees it. And so God could argue with him and God could react to Jonah's death wish. God is aware of all of this, but it's like God bypasses it because he understands there's something deeper going on. God notices the emotional process that's going on and the way that Jonah is relating to himself and the world. And so God completely bypasses the content. He doesn't engage the content of Jonah's anger and just let Jonah stay stuck in this same predictable pattern. God speaks to the emotional process. God points towards what's underneath it all. And he simply asks Jonah to consider the meaning of his anger. Uh, so he says, is it good to be angry, Jonah? Uh, the Hebrew is literally, is it good that it burns to you? That word good means, like, is it beautiful? Is it the best? Is it right? Is it pleasing? Is it, are you well? And it's a word that's based on covenant relationships sticking together. Uh, and this is the same question that God's been asking humans for a very long time. God asks Cain this same kind of question before he kills his brother Abel. Uh, he says to Cain, why are you so angry? Anger has this way of causing people to not see the image of God in others. And so God's trying to get at the meaning of his anger as a secondary emotion. Like he's trying to ask him, what's underneath this? You're so angry. Is it, are you afraid? Are you sad? What, what's going on? Is it good that it burns to you to be angry? So a quick reflection question that we chatted about on Sunday you can discuss or reflect on this now have you ever witnessed yourself or someone else stuck in a predictable pattern and as you reflect on that like where you just it just goes round and round and you keep doing the same thing were you focused on the content of the issue like what the fight is about or what the issue is, or were you focused on the emotional process going on, like the way that you were coming at it and what was going on underneath? So take a moment, discuss, reflect on that. Jonah was too hot. He wasn't going to talk to God about that question. Anger, it's, anger's good at letting us know that there's something definitely wrong. And Jonah knew that something was wrong, but what anger's not very good at is letting us know if the wrong is outside of us or inside of us. And most of the time we assume that the wrong is outside of us. So it's that person. It's those people. 
who are getting it wrong. It's my boss, it's my coworker, it's my spouse, it's those stupid Portlanders or those stupid conservatives or those stupid liberals or those rednecks or those politicians or those homeless people or those elites or you fill in the blank. Anger's not good at actually letting us know, oh, wait a minute, I didn't have enough information earlier uh, or I hadn't learned that yet or... I didn't have an adequate understanding of the complexity of this or my heart needed to grow up a whole lot. Anger's not very good at letting us know that kind of stuff. And so Jonah walks away and he finds a place east of the city where he can watch. If God changes his mind and decides to toast Nineveh, then Jonah would like to have a good view. And we're told that Jonah built a shelter to shade himself from the hot Middle Eastern sun. And this is when God made his move. And this is where the story gets good, in my mind. God provided a leafy plant and caused it to grow up over Jonah to shade his head in order to deliver him from, drum roll please, not from shade, but from evil. It's a fascinating line. God caused a plant to grow up to deliver Jonah from evil. So it's this strange picture right there in the story of Jonah, this picture of these two different shelters, these two different shades. Jonah is sitting underneath both of them. So because Jonah already built a shelter, he just finished building it, and that shelter is shading him from the sun. It's self-constructed. It's a picture of his autonomy and his independence, an affirmation of his outlook on life and situation. Like, look, I've been through a lot. I deserve to finally get away from those nasty people, those Nineveh people. I deserve to just rest here while I can dream of and wait for their demise. But then God gives Jonah this other shade, and it's a pure gift, this plant. Jonah didn't plant it. He didn't tend it. He didn't build it. It's just growing there. It's not something that he's earned or has coming to him. It just appeared, and it's going to deliver him from evil, we're told. And Jonah becomes very attached to this plant. He's very happy about the plant. A literal translation is, the plant caused Jonah to delight a great delight. And it's like Jonah doesn't know that this plant has been provided in order to deliver him from evil. Of course, in his mind, it's there to deliver him from the shade. It's Jonah's first time in the entire story to catch a break and to actually be happy. He doesn't have God bothering him. He's finally gotten away from all of those dirty, icky Nineveh people. He's out of town. He's constructed his own place to be. He can finally demonstrate some of his autonomy and independence and build something and huddle away from the world and enjoy some peace and quiet while he waits for the day of God's judgment on the world. And we're told that at dawn the next day, God provided a worm which chewed the plant so that it withered. 
Jonah was all wrapped up in the life of the plant. It was, he was so happy about it. It caused him delight to delight a great delight. And so there he is trying to keep it alive, but it dies. We're told when the sun rose, God provided a scorching east wind, and the sun blazed down on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. He wanted to die. And Jonah said, it would be better for me to die than to live. So do you notice what happened to Jonah's happiness there? It evaporated. It withered, just like the plant. Jonah is right back in the same old stuck emotional pattern of avoidance, distorting God's message, wanting to die, calling for help, lashing out. Like he's right back into the same pattern, even though earlier he was delighting a great delight. He was very happy. And once again, when Jonah says, I just want to die, it'd be better to die than live. As God responds, God does not address the content of what Jonah just said. Instead, God just asks a very similar question to the last question. It's a question about Jonah's emotional process. God asks Jonah about the meaning of his anger. He says, is it good to be angry about the plant? Is it good that it burns to you about the plant? Last time he just said, is it good to be angry? Now he's asking, is it good to be angry about the plant? And this time, Jonah didn't storm off. He didn't go build something. He'd already done that. This time, Jonah fired back at God. He said, it is good, and I'm so angry that I wish I were dead. And those are Jonah's last words in the entire book. In the entire story. And God only had one more question to ask Jonah. It wasn't a question about Jonah. And it wasn't a question about Nineveh. God asked Jonah a question about his own emotional process. About God's emotional process. And God introduced one more part of the emotional vocabulary the Hebrew word is hus. It's su like suffering love. It's suffering action that's done with tears in the eyes. It could be translated as compassion or concern. It's getting all wrapped up in the life of someone or something. God did not argue with Jonah's emotions about the plant. Like Jonah says, yeah, it's good that I'm angry. God actually validates Jonah's emotions about the plants. He says, Jonah, you've been all wrapped up in the life of this plant. You've been concerned and had compassion on this plant. That's It's hus. It's suffering action done with tears in your eyes. God says, you've been wrapped up in it. You didn't tend it. You didn't make it grow. It sprang up overnight and it died overnight, but you've been wrapped up in it. And then God asked Jonah his question. He said, should I not be all wrapped up in the life of Nineveh? Should I not have compassion, suffering action, suffering love with tears in my eyes for this greatly important city of Nineveh in which there are more than 120,000 people who can't tell their right from their left and also many animals. 
God wanted Jonah to notice what it felt like simply to feel these two emotions. Happiness. Rejoicing in the life of something. And suffering love. Action done with tears in your eyes on behalf of someone else or something else. And and the connection between these two emotions. God wanted Jonah to see this. To feel what it feels like. To get all wrapped up in the life of something. Like this cute little shade plant sprung up out of nowhere. And it was filling Jonah's heart with sheer delight. He was benefiting from it even though he hadn't invested anything into it. And when he lost this plant, God could have said, Wait a minute, Jonah. You still have that other shelter you built. Can't you be happy with that? But that's not what God said. God validated Jonah's happiness and his suffering love for that little plant and simply asked Jonah to consider, Jonah, what do you think about my happiness and my suffering love for Nineveh? Like, Have you considered, Jonah, what it feels like for me to look down on this city full of people and animals and they cause me to delight a great delight and I place a very high value on their life? And have you considered what it feels like for me when a worm eats its way into them and they give themselves over to violence and oppression and they start plundering other cities and They're withering away, and it's just breaking my heart. But I love them, and I've invested in them and created them and cared for them all along the way. And so I I huss. I love them with tears in my eyes. And I, I bear the weight of their violence in the cities they've plundered as I try to lead them to a better way and a better path, and I'm hanging on with them. And so that's the question that... God is is trying to get Jonah to connect with emotionally. God's trying to give Jonah an imagination for what it must feel like for someone to come along and say, like Jonah, just say, no, God, you have to torch Nineveh. Like, you still have Israel, so why are you complaining? You still have It's kind of like God saying, Jonah, you still have this other shade shelter you built. Can't you just be happy with it? And it's obvious why that doesn't work. Does it work to tell a parent to just completely give up on one child because they still have another different child? Uh, It doesn't work, and we all know why. It's because you can still see the face of your other child in your mind all the time. For God, with Nineveh, he's saying, I could still see the faces of all these people and animals that I love, and so I'm, I'm loving them with tears in my eyes. It's suffering love, suffering action. It can be difficult to identify for us in our own lives the emotions that are masked behind happiness and the emotions that are underneath our predictable patterns. And and then even once we identify those emotions, it can be difficult to know what to do with those emotions when they've been festering and brewing down deep for years, hidden away, possibly denied through clenched teeth. I'm not angry. I mean, 
the question that God's asking Jonah, I think he's been dealing with that anger for a long time. And it, it's very difficult to pull out of entrenched patterns we've been in, stuck on the content and ignoring the emotional process. And so God takes this more circuitous roundabout route with Jonah. And I wonder if it isn't a beneficial path for many of us to consider it from this angle. What if God invites you to connect with your own happiness, to connect with what is it that brings you to delight a great delight? And to feel what that feels like, to connect with that feeling. So take a moment and think about that feeling in your answer. What causes you to delight a great delight? And just connect with how that feels. Okay, and then the other question, what is it that causes you to love so much, to love so hard that it brings tears to your eyes? Like who or what does suffering love feel like? Think about that experience. Connect with how that feels. And God finally brings these together, simply inviting us to connect with those experiences and allow those experiences to open our imagination to what God experiences. What must it be like for God to delight a great delight over that person or those people who you have a quarrel with, that person who is frustrating and disgusting and you are certain that they are completely wrong what must it feel like for god to delight a great delight in them and then what must it be like for god to love that person so much that it brings tears to his eyes because it's a suffering love. There are aspects of God's experience with that person that hurt God's heart. And so this person who just causes your blood to boil and your blood pressure to skyrocket, what is it like for God, the way God feels that loving so much that it brings tears to your eyes? You know that experience somewhere else in your life. So what is it like for God to experience that with this person? Can you imagine what it must be like?
for God to love that person in the same way that you delight your great delight and in the same way that you love so hard that it brings tears to your eyes? Is your imagination of how God might be who God is for that person, that other, too small? God says, I am the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love. And what if that is true in bigger and broader ways than we can imagine? Thank you for joining us for a Sunday sermon from Neatart's Friends Church. We hope you'll join us soon for one of our in-person worship gatherings. For more information, hop on over to neatartsfriends.org. God's peace be with you, friends.